Okay, I, it's a little early yet, but I'm going to, this is a bonus for people that come early. This, this is just a little lesson in dental economics, and uh, I, I think you'll appreciate it, especially if you're, how many are dentists here? Okay, so. because we will be talking about a, <clears throat> a dental technique that requires no anesthesia most of the time. Uh, I'm Joel Michelson. I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Uh, work in a private practice in uh, southeastern Minnesota. We have five offices, uh, four different doctors. Um, and uh, you ask, why is an oral surgeon talking about a restorative technique? Uh, the, the short answer is uh, Phil Fisher asked me to. Uh, the long answer is I, I talked on uh, dental uh, treatment in low-income places, uh, emergency treatment a couple years ago, and mentioned uh, ART in passing, and I had more questions about that than uh, almost anything else that I, I talked about. And since then, I had several people call me and ask how they can get trained and that sort of thing. So uh, that's where my interest came from. I actually took a, a class in it when I was, uh, I teach uh, with Christian Medical Dental Association. We do CE courses uh, for missionaries overseas, and uh, it was one of the classes that we took 
Um, anyway, my objectives today are describe the ART procedure, <clears throat> describe the advantages of ART, describe the limitations, uh, prevent some evidence-based literature for its use. And uh, before I start to this, uh, Robert Yee is a, a member of the faculty of the University of Singapore, and he uh, was the one that taught the course that I took, and he kindly allowed me to borrow a lot of his slides. So uh, give credit where credit is due. Um, the World Health Organization says that worldwide, 60 to 90 percent of school children and nearly 100 percent of adults have dental cavities. Uh, globally, about 30 percent of people aged 65 to 74 have no natural teeth. <clears throat> Oral disease in children and adults is higher among poor and disadvantaged population groups, which we are primarily the groups that we work with as missionaries. Uh, my mission experience goes way back. I'm the little bald-headed guy here. Uh, I was born to... Uh, mission parents uh, in Cameron, West Africa. Um, my parents came back when I was shortly after this picture was taken, but uh, they went back when I was in high school, and then uh, I went over and uh, served three years there uh, as a, a school teacher and then as a, a financial uh, bookkeeper for the, the mission. And while I was there, there was a, a Church of Christ missionary who was, had a mobile medical clinic, and Every time we would see him, he would be whining about the fact that he spent most of his time doing dental extractions. So a little light went off in my head. I thought, well, you know, if he doesn't like doing that, and it sounded like something I was interested in, uh, came back, went to dental school, and uh, became an oral surgeon. So um, my first mission exposure was at a dental clinic on the border of Cambodia and Thailand. Uh, it was a Khmer Rouge refugee camp, and I had the privilege of spending a month there uh, training uh, uh, Cambodian uh, refugees on how to do basic uh, dental uh, procedures. Uh, it was during my general practice residency, but uh, we ran into a couple people that had oral cancers. I had a couple, actually one of the Khmer Rouge uh, top guys had an impacted wisdom tooth, and I had no idea how to treat this guy. Uh, fortunately, it was near the end of my rotation, so I passed him off on whoever came next, but uh, I that was one of my impetuses for going into oral surgery, was uh, to have a little broader background in treating emergencies like that. Uh, one of my goals is uh, to do one or two mission trips a year. Um, so I've spent the uh, past 20 years going on short-term trips. Uh, how many of you heard Brian Fickert last night? Okay. Uh, I, I was real hesitant to do short-term missions because in my mind I thought, you know, it costs $2,000 for me to go there. Why not send $2,000 over there and uh, use that money that way? They can buy dental care there. But then I did the math, and actually, if I'm there two weeks and I did X number of extractions, it paid for itself. So I was convinced that was one way to do it. The other was that uh, the group from our church that I worked with, we had actually a good plan. We worked with and through the mission uh, missionaries that we worked with, and we started clinics, and the government, if you build a clinic, would provide a nurse. And so my job was to train the nurses how to do simple extractions once the clinics were up and running. And so we had, have five different clinics over there that are still up and working. Uh, so I've extracted thousands of teeth in short-term situations, but, you know, the question is that patients would ask you is, you know, could you do something to save that tooth? And, uh, you know, as an oral surgeon, cold steel and sunshine cures everything, but... Maybe that's a limited perspective, <laughs> and so that's where art comes in. Um, one resource, and probably most of you are aware of this book, but you can download it online. If you're in a, 
limited resource situation or you are in a hospital or medical uh, center and you need a good dental uh, resource for uh, working with people in that situation, uh, I'd highly recommend this book. That's where I stole that cartoon from. Currently, I'm uh, working on uh, setting up a dental clinic in uh, Guinea, West Africa at Compassion Evangelical Hospital. I serve on the board there. And, uh, you know, the cost and the uh, logistics of setting up a dental clinic is, is extremely difficult. And uh, when we talk about the ART uh, technique, we'll find that it, it simplifies things dramatically, although you can't offer the same range of services. But what is ART? Uh, that's what we're going to answer. It's very simply put, uh, a traumatic restorative treatment. It's a method of restoring carious teeth with hand instruments and restorative materials that stick to the teeth. It's cost-effective and applicable in low-resource and special-needs situations. The approach includes oral health education for prevention as a main strategic component, uh, such things as diet, fluoride, and sealants. It's actually a subset of minimally invasive dentistry, uh, where early diagnosis and assessment of caries risk factors is important, uh, maximum tissue preservation, and minimal surgical intervention. Uh, there's abstracts uh, available. They have actually a website for uh, minimal invasive dentistry. It uh, has a lot of good information uh, and a lot of good research. The history of art, it was uh, first started and uh, tried in the 1980s in Tanzania where they used polycarboxylate cement and then uh, several community trials in Thailand, Zimbabwe, and Pakistan using glass ionomers. The results of the studies in Thailand and Zimbabwe showed a 71% to 85% um, restoration retention after three years, which is pretty good, actually. And as of in 1994, the World Health Organization endorsed art as a means of uh, primary dental care in uh, limited resource situations. Uh, it also has application in our environment. Uh, this is a statement from the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Uh, they recognize the unique clinical circumstances can result in challenges for restorative for treatment for various segments of our population. And <clears throat> in those situations, art may be very beneficial. Pediatric patients, uh, elderly patients in nursing homes, etc. cetera. Uh, a good cookbook for doing uh, atraumatic restorative treatment is this manual, which is in the public domain. Uh, it's free online, uh, or you can buy it. Uh, and they state in the manual that it's aimed at improving oral health care for all, uh, and it can be reviewed, abstracted, et cetera. Uh, they welcome any comments. And uh, by the way, I'll put all these, I'll put this, this whole slide set on uh, the website. I tried to upload it before I came, and my password didn't work, and I couldn't get a new password. So. <laughs> But it will be available, so you don't need to write all this down if, if you want to uh, access it later. <clears throat> okay, uh, what does an art restoration look like? Uh, this is a large class one carious lesion. This is right after the restoration was placed, and then this is what it looked like a year later. And you can see it, you know, it's not like an amalgam. It's, it's not going to wear the way the amalgam does, but it, uh, it saved the, the tooth and it, it's functional. Uh, Instruments and materials needed, uh, basically all you need are hand instruments. Uh, mouth mirrors, explorers, tweezers, spoon excavators, hatchets, hose and uh, carvers, then a mixing pad, uh, and then disposables such as cotton wool for uh, drying and uh, petroleum uh, jelly to protect the restorations. Uh, 
And if you're going to do class two lesions, you need mylar strips with wedges. So this is basically your whole setup. Uh, <clears throat> a little different than having a dental chair, compressor, uh, high-speed handpiece, suction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can throw this in a backpack and go just about anywhere. Uh, let's talk a little bit about glass ionomers, why they work in this uh, situation. Uh, if you use glass ionomers, you want to use high-viscosity glass ionomer cements. There are a number of different types, uh, but they seem to work the best uh, in this application. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm from Minnesota, and I had just got over a cold, so if my voice gets a little cloudy, Les will agree with me. <laughs> we had snow on the ground the day before we left, so... Uh, anyway, the cements are well known for their biologic tolerance, uh, adhesion, and fluoride release. Uh, they're available as a powder and a liquid that's mixed together. Uh, the setting technique is less sensitive than that for composites, and they promote a biochemical, biochemical modification of the oral environment. In other words, they kill uh, oral organisms. Oh, I got some. Thanks. <clears throat> Since they chemically bind uh, to the teeth, there's no need to cut sound tooth tissue to prepare the cavity, or at least it's minimized. Uh, they release fluoride, which has the advantage of arresting and preventing carriers around the restorations, and they're generally harmless to dent and pulp tissue, so they're very biocompatible. Uh, resin composite, copolymer, cop copamer, and resin-modified glass ionomers are also used. Um, but it seems like the auto-cured high-viscosity glass ionomers are the most appropriate. And one thing you want to be careful with, too, there are a lot of uh, cheaper brands out there, and, uh, you know, you want to save a few dollars, but what's the point of doing a quality restoration and then putting something in it that's not going to last? So I would uh, urge you to use the, the more, uh, maybe a little more expensive, but uh, much more durable materials. Okay, uh, selection for... Uh, our, basically, the best uh, application is class one, small to medium cavitations. Small class two cavitations where there's plenty of enamel support around it. Uh, class, class three cavitations where, which are accessible. Uh, they're not always. And then uh, class five lesions. Positioning is, is real important. Uh, we'll kind of go through the procedure here. Uh, you don't need a dental chair. You can put it. Uh, just have the patient supine and uh, sit on a chair. Uh, although you want to be careful how you position yourself because it's just like any other dental procedure, ergonomics are important. Uh, you don't want to wear your neck and your back out. Uh, and it is a hard, hard job to chop away enamel using hand instruments. So even though we call it a simple technique, it's not really an easy technique. It takes a little bit of practice, and you have to build up your finger strength if you're going to do it long term. Uh, this is just an example from... Uh, Dr. Yi, this is uh, in Nepal. Uh, next thing you need is a good light. Uh, we all know that. If you can't see, you can't work. Uh, then you need to isolate the operating site, uh, and uh, cotton rolls work very well. Uh, determine the extent of decay, remove any debris or plaque uh, in the cavitation, and then clean it out. And then you want to use your hand instruments, either an enamel access cutter, gingival margin trimmer, dental hatchet, whatever your preference is. Uh, some work better in, in different hands. Um, you insert the uh, instrument into the cavity, rotate it to remove any undermined enamel, and uh, work into the corners. 
and this just shows the cavitation with the overhangs that need to be removed to open up the access cavity. Uh, the next step, once you've got access, is to use your uh, spoon excavators. Uh, you want to remove the soft demineralized carious dentin and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, use scooping movements. Uh, start with the small excavators, and then once you have access, you can move on to uh, larger excavators. Once you've completely removed the soft infected dentin, you want to rinse out the cav cavity and Use, use a syringe. That's the only time you need to use a syringe is just as a water syringe. Uh, you can have a big bore needle and use that to irrigate uh, and then clean and dry with uh, wet cotton pellets. Uh, you don't need to remove any all the discolored dentin. Uh, and actually, if you leave a little bit of uh, fairly hard uh, carries behind, it's not going to be a problem long term. Uh, it's probably better to err on that side rather than removing too much and getting a pulpal exposure. Uh, in a tooth that you haven't had pulpitis or that sort of uh, symptomatology. Uh, next step is to condition the cavity. If you use hand instruments, it's going to create a smear layer, which is going to inhibit the uh, binding of the glass ionomer to the restoration. Uh, and this is just a scanning electron micrograph showing the smear layer and then what it looks like after it's uh, conditioned. So it improves the chemical bonding. Uh, I don't know how many of you do uncovering and bondings where you stick brackets on teeth, or if you're an orthodontist, you always acid etch. It's basically doing the same thing that you're doing with an acid etch. And it is, uh, you can use special products such as citric acid, or the simplest, most of the glass ionomers, the liquid component is, is uh, a good conditioner as well. Uh, the main thing is to follow the manufacturer's instructions. Probably the most critical thing as far as uh, mixing is you want to avoid air bubbles in the liquid that you mix with the powder. Uh, so if you're going to use the uh, liquid as a conditioner as well, you can put two drops out. The first drop is usually going to have air bubbles, so you use that for your conditioner. And then the second drop you use as your mix with the powder. Uh, the way to avoid air bubbles is to do two drops. Uh, don't release the pressure and move the bottle vertically. And then in high humidity situations, especially, you want to replace the top of the bottle because it will uh, go bad if it gets too humid. So this is just showing don't tip the bottle. Do straight up and down. Keep squeezing it and then uh, move from one drop to the next. Uh, again, avoid air bubbles. Uh, going backwards here. Uh, this just shows the air bubbles that will cause problems uh, if you do it next because it will create voids in your restoration. Uh, after you've conditioned it, uh, clean out the cavity again, wash it and dry it, and then have it. This is important now. You don't want to let any saliva or contamination get in there before you place your restoration. So you can have a bite on a cotton roll to keep it dry while you're doing your mixing. Uh, the timing, uh, usually for conditioning, you want to leave it in for about uh, 10 seconds and then wash and dry. So again, importance of isolating the operating site. Uh, hand mixing, just put it on a pad, mix it up like you would any other cement, uh, following instructions. Uh, you want to maintain a correct powder to uh, liquid ratio. They come with a little scoop that you uh, mix, and then it's usually one drop per one scoop. Uh, estimate how much material you have. If you have a real large restoration, you're going to need several drops and several scoops. And uh, when before you uh, put mix, take the powder out with the scoop, you want to. Uh, tap it to remove any air from the powder. Fill the scoop, remove the excess, check for voids, place on the pad, and then close the bottle immediately again to avoid uh, moisture contamination. 
And this is what it should look like once it's mixed. It should be kind of a glossy, uh, almost ice cream-like consistency. Uh, you want to place the glass ionomer when the putty is, it's a putty consistency. Uh, use small increments initially to fill in the voids around the margins, and then uh, use larger increments, and again, around the margins. And then finally, you can take whatever you have left, uh, put a little Vaseline on your glove thumb and, and push it in and pressure, uh, finger pressure to overfill it. Uh, since you are overfilling it, then you know, obviously you want to check your occlusion, make sure that uh, you don't have too much excess material, and uh, you can carve away the excess material quite easily before it sets. Um, it will set, but it takes about an hour, and it's very moisture-sensitive while it's setting, so you want to cover the restoration with either uh, cocoa butter or petroleum jelly and uh, you know, tell the patient not to chew for at least an hour. Uh, and then post-operative instructions, don't eat hard foods. Uh, I remember when I first went to Cameroon and we sat down and had chicken and everybody ate the bones and it was crunching away and I'm thinking, oh, that's not good for your teeth. <laughs> but uh, the glass ionomer is not as strong as amalgam, so they don't want to chew bones. And then you want to encourage oral hygiene uh, using fluoridated toothpaste, et cetera. So this is what a, a, a well-done restoration will look like. You can see there's no voids. Uh, it's solid. It's well situated in the tooth. When I did the class, I had a, we did it on uh, you know stone-mounted models. Mine didn't look like that at all. But <laughs> so it is a little technique sensitive. It takes a little practice. Um, what can cause failures of the restorations? Uh, insufficient removal of caries. Obviously, you want to remove as much as possible. Uh, improper mixing, uh, if you use poor quality glass ionomer cement, uh, the level of humidity and the temperature during the mixing process, uh, incomplete condensation if you don't pack it down firmly, uh, contamination with saliva or blood, uh, or insufficient or not, no conditioning, and then level of patient cooperation, and then finally, the skill of the operator. So those are all reasons that you could run into problems. <clears throat> For multi-surface restorations, uh, you can use a matrix, matrix band and wedging. Um, it all, they also make uh, the glass ionomers an excellent uh, fissure sealant. Uh, it's indicated for enamel caries. It's not into the dentin uh, or teeth with deep pits and fissures or incipient lesions. And the technique is identical for, uh, except you don't have to do the preparation ahead of time. So you isolate clean, condition fill, and then carve, and uh, then tell them to brush their teeth. Okay. Uh, so that's it. That was pretty simple. Anybody here think that they couldn't do this? That, you know, you got in 20 minutes the whole technique. Uh, you know, the, the next part is to actually practice doing it, but we won't do that today. Uh, we're going to move on to the advantages of using the R technique. I'm partially colorblind, so my kids gave me this. They thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> you can see it's a, a Rubik's Cube, and, you know, if you're colorblind, you win every time. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk. The main advantage, one of the main advantages we mentioned earlier is that it limits the size of the preparation uh, and extension of the caries, uh, so it preserves uh, tooth structure. There's less exposure of the dental tubules, so, uh, so people are not as uncomfortable with you when you're uh, preparing the cavities. We all remember GV black and extension and prevention we learned in dental school, so this would be a typical class one cavity preparation. This would be a typical art preparation. 
and you can see uh, you know, you're preserving uh, two structure because you don't need the retention because it is an adhesive material. Uh, you can do sealed restorations where you place a restoration in the cavitation and then uh, continue the restoration out to do pit and fissure sealants at the same time. Uh, and sealed restorations actually last longer and protect uh, more against secondary decay. So this is just an example of a sealed restoration. This would be the cavitation and then uh, doing the sealant along with it, obviously using the same material. We mentioned earlier sustained fluoride release. Uh, over the period of three months, it drops off fairly precipitously. Interestingly enough, though, if you do uh, fluoride treatments, uh, topical fluoride, it will uh, actually uh, increase again, and then it, it uh, decreases over time as well. But uh, fluoride is a good thing to have around uh, the cavitations. Probably the biggest selling point for mission applications is it's very economical. Uh, the cost of a, a single art restoration is about half of what an amalgam restoration is. Uh, but the main cost savings is in cost of equipment. Uh, if you did a portable dental unit, uh, you know, you're looking at $10,000 to actually be able to do amalgam restorations uh, versus $230 some dollars for the cost of the art instruments. It's also very patient and tooth friendly. Uh, yeah, reduce, reduce need for anesthesia. Uh, I did a rotation when I was uh, growing up in uh, Colorado, and we went on a, mar a migrant health program, and the kids didn't speak any English, but the first kid went back and told everybody the needle was this long. And so every kid that came into the clinic after that would just say, no shot, no shot, no shot. And that was <laughs> the extent of their English. So it made it for a very difficult uh, to treat these kids. So it's less dramatic. You don't have the high-speed handpiece. You don't have the suction. Uh, so it, uh, patients tolerate it a lot uh, better than they would with more traditional restorations. Uh, and then it is very simple. It's, uh, you can train non-dental personnel or primary health care workers in this uh, technique. Uh, and again, it's simple, but it's not always easy. So, And then infection control is, is very simple. All you need really is a, a pressure cooker. The instruments clean easily. Uh, you do have to sharpen them, so uh, you want to make sure that you, you keep them uh, up to date, though. Uh, it does have limitations, though. Uh, there are contraindications to doing a traumatic restorative uh, treatment. Uh, if you have a tooth that's had a history of pain or it has chronic or uh, acute pulpal inflammation, obviously that either has to be extracted or uh, root canal treated. Uh, if the pulp of the tooth is exposed either prior to your intervention or during intervention, uh, needs to be extracted or a root canal done. Uh, if there's an abscess or fistula indicating a non-vital tooth, and then if the caries lesion is not accessible to hand instruments. Uh, or if you have extensive cavitation, particularly interproximally, that the tooth is not going to have enough uh, strength to hold up long term. So we all remember red eyes from, well, we called that the red eye when I was a dental student, but uh, if you have a pulp exposure, uh, extraction is indicated. Uh, this is what a fistula, uh, you know, if you're a discolored tooth, you know that that tooth's not vital. You wouldn't want to do a restoration on that. Or if you have class three caries that is not accessible. So uh, what is the evidence that we have for the efficacy of our, uh, and this, this is probably the main thing why it hasn't caught on, because when it first started, people were saying, well, this is kind of a, 
a compromise treatment. It's not, you know, it's something we're doing because we can't do what we really need to be doing. Uh, but that's, that's not actually true. Uh, as of last year, there were over 260 articles dealing with various aspects of the art technique. Uh, and there are uh, textbooks available now in minimal intervention dentistry, preventive and community dentistry, uh, cariology and pediatric dentist, dentistry that all have chapters on doing the art technique. And then there's 25 years of clinical experience as well. <clears throat> so I'm just going to highlight some of the, the articles. I'm not going to go through all 260 of them. Uh, but a comparison of rotary instruments and art showed that in pediatric patients uh, there was two, twice as many uh, much complaining about uh, pain than we, if you use hand instruments versus rotary instruments. Uh, and then you're measuring psychological and physiological effects of both techniques on children showed that it was advantageous to just use hand instruments. Uh, they had less discomfort. How efficacious are uh, spoon excavators in removing uh, caries? Uh, in vitro studies were done, which showed it was a clinical acceptable method uh, and actually was the best method in terms of combined efficiency and effectiveness. And then in vivo studies... Uh, there was no difference in the efficacy between hand excavation and chemomechanical methods. And hand excavation was better than burrs and lasers in removal of infected dentin for deciduous teeth. Survival rates. Uh, this is a three-year study compared art with amalgam. And actually, art came out ahead, uh, 86% to 80%. Uh, and then cumulus survival with multi-surface restorations also, again, in deciduous teeth, uh, 49% versus 43%. And then this was a this is a bar graph of comparison of art with amalgam restorations over a six-year period. And you can see they're pretty uh, uh, compatible. They're really about the same. Art actually did a little bit better than the amalgam restorations. And this was in permanent dentition. Class 5 restorations in the elderly. Uh, there was a study done in Hong Kong, and it was... Uh, Statistically insignificant, slightly less retention, but uh, very good. And then if we uh, look at survival by restoration type, and this just kind of reinforces you want to be selective where you use these types of uh, restorations. The one-year survival rate in primary teeth in Class 5 restorations and Class 1 restorations was up to 95%. In multi-surface Class 2s, it drops 55 to 75%. And then in class three and class four restorations, it's uh, you know around 50%. And this little chart is for non-dentists, if you know, want to know what we're talking about. <laughs> class one is these little ones. Uh, we won't go there. But anyway, uh, is it a reasonable alternative for class two caries in primary molars? I would not recommend it probably for permanent molars. Over the short term, uh, class two caries restored using art uh, performed as well as those using conventional rest restorations. Uh, do we always need to get all of the caries or bacteria out? Uh, there was a study in the ADA journal a few years back that showed that if you seal it in uh, and it's not an excessive amount, that uh, it isolates the nutritional supply and then uh, either the bacteria become dormant or die and they pose no risk in the process doesn't continue. So that was an interesting study. Long-term restoration survival. Uh, this was a 10-year study done in the U.S. 
129 restorations, and after 10 years, 65% of the single surface restorations were still there, 31% uh, of the multi-surface restorations. And if they took out uh, multiple uh, ones that were extracted or re-restored, uh, the survival rate was actually 87% on uh, class one and 58% on class twos. So it compares favorably with other restorative uh, techniques. There was a meta-analysis done on 50 peer-reviewed articles published between 1992 and 2012, and the conclusion was that it was a viable restorative option for carious teeth, particularly in children and patients with anxiety or medical compromise. Uh, and then one final application, this is from Gordon Christensen. Uh, he put a little article in the ADA Journal, what you do with a patient that comes in, has no resources, has a bombed-out mouth. How, how can you at least tight them over until they can get more definitive restorations? And he recommended using high-strength, fast-setting glass ionomer. And there's a reference. And he said it's well-documented that this type of treatment saves teeth, at least until the patient can afford more conventional treatment. And this is another article I'll put on the website, but it's a 25-year <clears throat> study uh, review uh, by the uh, people that wrote the manual, uh, and it's, it's got a lot of good information. So to wrap it up here, uh, summary, art is not a compromise, but an effective alternative treatment uh, approach for developing countries and special needs groups in the industrialized world. It's a biological approach which requires minimal cavity preparation and conserves sound tooth tissues, causes less trauma. Uh, generally painless, decreasing the need for local anesthetic and uh, decreasing psychological trauma in patients. It simplifies infection control as hand instruments can be easily sterilized. Uh, no electricity, driven large and expensive dental equipment needed which enables it to be practiced in remote areas. Uh, it's very cost effective and it has great potential in use among children, fearful adults, and uh, handicapped patients. So I hope that's all clear. Uh, uh, chance to ask questions, and then, yes? So do you find when you do use this technique, generally you say more times than not, you don't use anesthetic unless they start saying it first time? Yeah, generally, uh, I mean, Dr. Yi, when he did his uh, out clinics, they don't—they didn't even take local anesthetic along because, it, you know, that's a whole different teaching process. And uh, so, if you're training like village health workers how to do the technique, uh, you don't use local anesthetic. And so, it, it, yeah, it's usually not necessary. Yes. Are these like temporary fillings that you could get at like a pharmacy or? Something? No, no, it's it's those those are uh, usually zinc oxide eugenol and. Oh. And that's what the, the military used to use that uh, when, you know, like in Vietnam, they would, that's where it was developed, IRM. It uh, was put in there, just an intermediate restorative material because it was a very short-term fix. But those actually lasted uh, for a fairly long period of time, too. Do you have a uh, commercial name for the ionomer that you're using? I'm not supposed to do that, but if you look on the slide, there was Fuji uh, 9 was the one that we used. But... But there are different different ones. That, that was one that I trained with. Actually, is it 9 or 11? I have to go back. Is it 9? Okay. No. Yeah, well, it was real fine print. I, but where he's squeezing it out of the bottle, you can see them.
Yeah. Um, I, I don't do the technique, so I w I'm not a good person to ask that. Uh, I can give you Dr. Yee's uh, uh, email address. You could ask him directly or email me, and I can email to him. Okay. Other questions? Yes. No, that would be a, a good idea. Yeah, get a little more. Uh, Especially. Yeah. Yeah. Again, probably the cost would be the biggest factor there. Yeah. <laughs> But it, you know. Okay. Other questions? I just have a couple of final things to wrap up. Uh, art education, it is taught uh, in a number of dental schools. The exact uh, number of schools is not known, but in, especially in Latin America and Brazil, 5% of, of the schools that responded to a survey we're teaching it uh, usually in pediatric dentistry, and they, they offered a full course in 63% of the dental schools. Uh, and then in the United States, uh, actually, this is a somebody's doctoral thesis, but 88% uh, of the pediatric dentistry residency programs uh, taught at least a, a modified form of it, and 66% of the predoctoral pediatric programs in the U.S. provided training. <clears throat> Only 30% of the postdoctoral programs and 14% of the predoctoral programs actually used it often or very often on patients in the clinic. So it's out there. You, if you wanted to get training, you'd probably go to your local dental school and ask them if they, they do train, and you could probably uh, tag along when they're doing that training. Uh, another resource, uh, which I thank uh, Les for, is... Uh, down in Texas, there's a gentleman who, a Canadian-trained de uh, dental, I don't think he's a dentist. I th he's got a different uh, degree, but two weeks a year he does training for uh, non-dentists, basically, on how to do this technique as a missions application. And I talked to him. He's got one coming up in January, and then he usually does the other one in June. So if you had people that you wanted to train for overseas uh, uh, training, uh, this is the contact information. He has a website. Um, you know, that also brings up the point of, you know, our, what's the licensing and those types of things for this. Uh, in most of the situations we're using, it's, it's fairly non-invasive, and most public health uh, people in, in the third world would have no objection to non-dentists doing this procedure. But as always, you want to check your local area. So, okay. Any other questions? We're right on time, so I thank you for your attention. And uh, if you have other questions, or uh, you can email me or come up afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.